0: Oh, to be a loyal subject of a king like Jesus. It's it's that for which our hearts yearn. Thank you, Suja. Thank you. Now on. Okay, so what we're learning in our study of John 18 and 19 is that the themes of the whole gospel gather up and build towards a climax in the light of the cross of Jesus Christ. An account of Jesus' death is called a a passion, and in St. John's passion, he introduces us to six characters, each of whom embodies the central questions raised by the Gospel of John. So, So for example, we met Judas, Judas asked the question, what do I want? And then there was Caiaphas, and Caiaphas asked the question, can I ever be forgiven? And then there's Peter who asks, who am I? Today we meet John's fourth character who is a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. And he raises the question, what is truth? All right, let's pull out our Bibles, uh, navigate over to John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 881. If you're able, let's stand together, and read God's word as an act of worship. John 18, 33 through 38a, we're going to break that 38th verse in half just as the heading does in our scripture text. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. My followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is the truth? This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. So, I, while I was reading this text last week, I got a notification on my phone. It said, There's a problem with my Netflix account. Do you, get, do you get these? I mean, I get them all day long, every day. I get calls, I get text messages, I get email, warranty expired, credit card frozen, won a prize. Is it true? Is it true? I mean, this one's easy because I don't even have a Netflix account, so. But let's start here. You and I are bombarded with messages every day. Isn't that true? Just bombarded with messages. Experts estimate that there are between six and 10,000 advertising messages that assault your eyeballs every single day, 10,000. That's two times more than 2007, that's 20 times more than the 70s. It's not just advertising, it's not just spammers, it's not just marketing. We get messages from our parents, from our culture, from our schools, our movies and music. We get messages from our friends, our neighbors, from people that we date from people who hire and fire us. We get messages from ourselves even. Our own bodies produce messages. Our brains, we get messages from our fears and our desires. Are they true? Are they true? Now for St. John, he seems more interested in the question, how do you know if a message is true? See, here now, entering into the shadow of the cross, we find Pontius Pilate asking the question, what is truth? But Jesus seems to be asking a deeper question yet. How would you know what is true or not? Notice what Jesus asks Pilate. Pilate has just asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And as Jesus oftentimes does, he answers a question with his own question. Uh, What's he say? Read verse 34. Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? See, he's probing beneath the question that Pilate asks. Where did that question come from, Pilate? Uh, Did it come from yourself or did it come from other people? Are you wrestling personally with my claim or are you merely reflecting the crowd? See that? How do you know something's true? Jesus is interested. What's beneath the question? So there are two senses, I think, that you could take this uh, question that Jesus is asking, Pilate, kind of the what sense or the how sense. You could, you could take it in the what sense. In other words, Jesus is asking Pilate, well, what's in your mind? You know, Jesus is genuinely curious. He loves Pilate. He wants Pilate to know God, wants Pilate to come to believe in him, to receive life everlasting. And so Jesus is asking kind of what's going on in your mind when you hear my claim. But I think there's another sense in which that Jesus is getting at and that's the how sense not what's in your mind but how is your mind working I mean Jesus is genuinely concerned for Pilate or well he knows Pilate and he knows that Pilate is a consummate pragmatist which means that for Pilate the truth is dependent on the day of the week. The truth is dependent on whatever he needs to believe in order to keep himself in power. Pilate's mind, Jesus knows, will always be captive to the opinions of others and to his own self-interest. How do you know something's true? Pilate might just say, oh, come on, you just know, it's just common sense. I mean, it's just obvious what's true, right? But Jesus, no. John gives us this picture of Jesus probing deeper than that. He's really asking, how is your mind working? And and John shows us that if you say, well, I just know what you might mean, if you're Pontius Pilate, is "I, I just know what the crowds know. What you might mean when you say it's just common sense is it's just popular opinion. What you might mean when you say it's obvious is it's obvious to people like me. See, what John is revealing here is a character who is unconsciously crowdsourcing the truth. And there's a warning. His mind is leading him into the shadows. There's a caution here. You might say it like this, sometimes our minds don't tell us the truth. Sometimes our minds don't tell us the truth. Now, modern science tells us the same thing. But this is a central theme in the Gospel of John as I say, you step back and look at these characters in light of the the themes of the gospel, you see, oh my goodness, John has been working with this all along. His words, darkness and blindness, these are used in John's gospel uniquely in a metaphorical sense, in a cognitive sense. To walk in darkness in John is not to have a nice evening stroll. Ah, how nice. No, to walk in darkness in John is to live with disoriented thinking. To be blind in John is not to lose your physical sight, it's to be unable to perceive the truth. So Jesus says in John 3, 19, people love the darkness because their deeds are evil. And then on the other hand, he says in John 7, 17, anyone who resolves to do the will of God will know whether the teaching is from God. In other words, our spiritual and moral commitments distort our cognitive abilities. In other words, John is arguing that we think, you and I think what we think because we want what we want, disordered desires. This is why irony is such an important tool for John. Commentators notice John uses a lot of irony in his gospel, particularly in the passion narrative, we haven't looked at it so much. But he does it because he's trying to highlight cognitive distortion. Let me give you an example of this cognitive distortion. In John chapter seven through nine there's a discourse between Jesus and the crowds. It's the longest discourse in the gospels let alone John. And as John reports this discourse he records them making contradictory statements. There are internally inconsistent truth claims coming from the crowds. So, for example, in John 7, verse 20, the crowds say of Jesus, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? And then five verses later, they say, is this not the man whom they're trying to kill? See that? They can't both be true. Or in verse 27 of chapter 7, they say, Jesus can't be the Messiah because we know where this man is from. Flip ahead to chapter nine, verse 29, they say Jesus can't be the Messiah because we don't know where he comes from. See, they can't both be true. Yeah, and John actually expects you to to giggle at this, to notice this as an astute reader. John's not getting the reporting wrong, he's actually showing what's happening in the minds of the crowd. Their, Their minds aren't telling them the truth. And as I say, modern science tells us that this is true. Our brain messages are not always reliable. You scientists use phrases like deceptive brain messages or cognitive distortion or confirmation bias. Now John's not thinking of this biologically as, as we might, but he's thinking about it spiritually. He's trying to be a faithful witness to the whole Bible, the teaching of the Bible, which is back in the beginning Human, humanity fell away from God and that this we call the fall sometimes actually affects the mind. It damages our cognitive function. And so we find out through the whole Bible there are these phrases that point to this. Like in Romans 1.22 we read they, which in this case is humanity, became futile in their thinking. Futile in their thinking. And their senseless minds, senseless minds were darkened. Or in Ephesians 4 we read they, in this case it's the nations, are darkened in their understanding. And all this comes to a climax when we come to the cross. So here's what the, the cross shines on this. The cross, Paul tells us, is foolishness. It's an offense, St. Paul says, and uses the word offenses, the word scandalon in Greek. It's a scandal to our way of thinking. In other words, at the cross, God renders judgment on human wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, he quotes Isaiah 29 in, in which the Lord says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And Paul goes, that's what happens at the cross. Sometimes our minds don't tell us the truth. Now you might remember if you were here two weeks ago, I mentioned a poet named John Dunn. John Donne had a great mind, he was uh, trained at Cambridge, he was a lawyer, elected to Parliament in 1602, he was absolutely brilliant but John Donne could admit that he was trapped in his own distorted thinking. You can hear that in his Holy Sonnet 14, I want to read part of it to you again. I I recommend you Google Holy Sonnet 14 John Donne and and read this poem, it's just a beautiful poem for Lent, sometimes it's called, Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. And in it, John Donne writes this. He says, "I, like a usurped town, to another due, labour to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue." See, there's a metaphor there, right? Poets will do this. The, the, my life is like a town. He's suggesting reason is sort of the mayor of the town and it's supposed to be in charge but somehow he's been toppled and the town has taken over and the mayor now my reason is helpless in other words my own thoughts seem to betray me I want to let you in oh God see this is a prayer I want to let you in oh God but I can't my mind is a prisoner to something else what's he saying Our minds are caught in a conflict of messages. And this is the way that John tells the story of the passion. More than any other gospel writers, John extends this interview that Jesus and Pilate have. It's not clear who's interviewing whom in, in John's gospel. And, and Pilate goes back and forth between Jesus and the crowds, back and forth. He seems to be warming to Jesus and there's genuine interest. And you go, oh, well, look at Pilate. And then he goes back and he listens to the crowd. And, and then he warms to the crowd and you're wondering, how is this going to turn out? He's caught between the two messages. Jesus says, I'm the king. And the crowd say, he's a crook. Jesus says, listen to me. And the crowd say, crucify him. See? Two messages, very different, both for Pilate. One offers life, one calls for death. And so Pilate asked, what is truth? A couple weeks ago, I was asked by a public health expert to review an article that they were preparing for publication. And it was kind of a post-mortem on the pandemic. It was about what churches could do um, better the next time. And they were saying there will be a next time. Um, and it, I, so i did i reviewed the article and but uh, for me here's my reaction i wanted him to focus more on what public e- health experts can do better next time and i know i mean just lay person here but in my humble humble opinion i know who i'm talking to in my humble opinion one of the biggest failures of the health uh, the pandemic was our underestimation of how medical care would get politicized in America. That's the ball we really missed, right? How it would be that data and science would become weaponized in our culture. As far as my takeaway for churches, This is my takeaway, that those of us who call ourselves believers are much more shaped by the culture and our media tribes than we are by Jesus. That has become very clear to me these last few years. And it's not just public health, by the way, it's how we think about sexuality, race, climate, abortion, poverty. Our minds are shaped by the crowds. And this is true on the left and on the right. I find myself asking how is it that the crisis of politicization and polarization in the culture has become a crisis in the church? How'd that happen? How is it that our convictions are framed more by the terms of debate in the culture than they are by the grace and truth of Jesus Christ? How did that happen? How is it that we invest more in gaining political power for our so-called Jesus than by embodying the way of the true and living? Jesus. How did that happen? See to whom are we listening? To whom are we listening? Who or what is shaping the way that we think? And I would suggest that we're much more like Pontius Pilate than we realize. Our minds are caught in a conflict of messages. I like a usurped town to another do. Reason your viceroy in me proves weak or untrue. Well, thanks for coming to church today. <laughs> but so the, I'm, Thank you for listening so graciously. But here's the question, what do we do? What, what do we do? How can we know the truth? If we're caught in a conflict of messages and if our minds don't always tell us the truth, What do I do when I don't know what to believe? Well, Jesus gives Pilate the answer. Did you catch it? In verse 37, Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Listen to me, Jesus says. Listen to me. I'd put it this way. We'll know the truth when we listen to Jesus and trust his word even above our own thoughts. Now, this is countercultural. We'll know the truth when we trust his word even above our own thoughts. Now, John Dunn, let's come back to him. He, he imagined that a mind was like a crowded town. That's your mind, a crowded town. And I wonder if he was thinking about St. Paul when he wrote those lines in his poem. Because St. Paul uses a similar metaphor. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Catch this. Look, look, listen for the metaphor behind these words. Paul writes, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is Paul saying, I'm learning to challenge my own thinking. Isn't that interesting? He's he's leaning into the prophetic tradition of Israel that called into question Israel's own sense of itself. The great Rabbi Saul of Tarsus is not taking the deliverances of his own mind at face value. He's saying, I take captive every thought. And there's a metaphor here, and it's it's this. His mind is like a walled town, a town with a little wall around it. And you know how these ancient towns would work. During the day, the soldiers would march out, and they'd find an enemy, and they'd engage in a war, and then they'd come back, and then they'd spend the night in the, in the town and pull up the bridge or whatever, and and, and the town should be safe. But no, apparently. And Paul's little metaphor here: it's not safe. That there are there are there are spies inside the town, or there are little insurrectionists inside the town, and and, and those are. Uh, agents of the outside enemy, arguments, he says, pretensions, uh, messages, thoughts in my own mind. And Paul says, we're learning to take those things captive to Christ. I don't want them roaming the streets of my mind at night, right, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give them amnesty in, in the courtyard of my mind. I'm not gonna give them a bed, I'm gonna arrest them, I'm gonna see them, notice them, arrest them and take them captive for Christ, that's what Paul's saying. Now I want you to know, and here I hope to encourage you, the enemy has no authority over you. Do you know that? The enemy, the evil one has no authority over your life. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth been given to me and he delegates authority to you. He doesn't delegate any authority to the evil one. But what the evil one knows is that evil one can leverage your authority if he can get lies over the wall into your mind. If you grant truth to something that is not true in your own mind, you give the enemy authority over your life. It's your own authority. That's what Paul says, don't do that. We take captive every thought. So how would you do this? How would you take captive every thought? Well, let's drill down one more level and turn to the book of Proverbs because it's a great passage here in Proverbs chapter 3 that really unpacks this very practically. Proverbs 3, verse 5 trust in the Lord with all your heart do not lean on your own understanding seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take don't be impressed with your own wisdom, I love that translation instead fear the Lord and turn away from evil, this is ancient wisdom now let's unpack this quickly, there are three parts to it, first trust in the Lord you want to say to yourself something like this, he loves me this is the gospel. He gave his life for me. He knows me better than I know myself. He wants what's good for me more than I want it even my, for myself. So I'm going to trust him. Trust in the Lord. And then second, seek his will. Say to yourself, you know, what does his word, the Bible, tell me about this situation? What revelation, what truth has it revealed? And then, ask how is the Holy Spirit leading me in this situation? Remember, the Word and the Spirit always work together. They never against one another, always together. And there's a promise that comes with this one. That is that, that the Lord will cut through the blindness. He'll do it. He'll straighten out the distortions in our thinking. He'll show you which path to take. Seek his will, seek his will. And then thirdly, don't be impressed with your own wisdom. So you shrug and you say to yourself, I will put myself under his word. Even if I can't make sense of it, I'm going to put myself under its authority. I'll decenter my own thinking and privilege the thinking of the Lord, God's thinking. I'll embrace my own limitations and embrace his mystery, God's mystery. And if I don't know why God tells me a certain thing or not to do a certain thing, I'll, I'll just not know and I'll trust him anyways. See, so this is how we take captives of our thoughts. Trust in the Lord, seek his will, don't be impressed with your own wisdom. This is how we resolve the conflicts in our minds. We listen to Jesus and trust his word even above our own thoughts. So brothers and sisters, try this. I encourage you, try this this week. They'll tell you the world is doomed. Take that thought captive. They'll tell you money gives you life. Take that thought captive. They'll tell you, you don't belong. Take that thought captive. They'll tell you the ends justify the means. Take that thought captive. They'll tell you, it's your life, consenting adults do what they do. Take that thought captive. They tell you, you're a failure. You can't be forgiven. You're worthless. Take that thought captive to Christ. Because there's a crowd behind every one of those thoughts. Yes, but there's also Jesus. There's also Jesus. Jesus looking into your eyes like he's looking into the eyes of Pontius Pilate, loving you as he loves him and saying to you, listen to me, listen to me. Finally, because the truth is, our minds don't always tell us the truth, but Jesus saves us anyway. That's the good news. Our minds don't always tell us the truth, But Jesus saves us anyway. I love that about Jesus. This is what I love about Jesus. You don't have to get it all right. You don't have to answer all the questions. You don't have to check all the boxes. Jesus is ready to save you right now no matter who you are or what you think about him. I don't know if you watched this, the the Oscars last weekend. Having come from L.A., I'm obliged to pay attention there's some very tender speeches that were given, this year in particular. And one message caught my eye. It was, it was by Daniel Kwan. Daniel Kwan is one of the two Daniels. And they were co-authors and co-directors of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And Daniel Kwan is receiving one of his awards. And he said this. He says, we are all products of our context. Think about that. We are all products of our context. Now, I know you can take that in a cynical way. I know this is the kind of thing that Pontius Pilate could have said, by which he would have meant context is destiny. You know, wherever you're born, that'll determine your beliefs and the shape of your life. You'll never be anyone other than just someone in that crowd. But That's not what Daniel Kwan meant. It couldn't have been what he meant. I mean, he wrote a movie about the multiverse, Right, The power of choice to transcend our context about how simple, ordinary acts of non conformity can launch us into a whole other universe. He couldn't have meant that. But more than that, we know he didn't. He's not saying context is destiny, but really what he means is my context was love and love is my destiny. I say that with confidence because he goes on to honor his parents. The reason he says context is destiny is because he wanted to honor his mother and his father. They were immigrant parents who came to America. They left their context and they created a whole new, they sacrificed everything. They gave up their lives to create a new context for a son named Daniel. And now their son was standing there receiving the highest award for achievement in his industry and honoring them. It was a a beautiful moment. He's saying, if not for them, if not for how hard they work, for how much they sacrifice, how much they love me, I would not be standing here today. And his point is, love can change our destiny. And that is the point that St. John is making. His whole gospel, that's the point. That's what happens at the cross. Just look at the man on the cross. He's more than a man in John's gospel. This is God himself coming from way beyond our context into our context in order to create a whole new context in his love. He comes to testify to the truth from outside of our small T truths with his capital T truth. He is the truth. That's where John begins the gospel, right? In John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. He used that word logos, which is the Greek word for, for reason, rationality. He is the truth made flesh, the word of God, the message of God. And he's not truth-seeking power over us like Pontius Pilate. He's crucified truth, seeking to serve us in love. So that you and I get to stand here today in this place of love. We get to stand here like Daniel Kwan, holding an award, but an award not for our accomplishments, an award for his accomplishments. He does it all, and then he looks at us and says, well done. This is his grace. It's amazing. That's what I love about Jesus. His holy life, his sacrifice on the cross. Remember, John, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus wins the Lifetime Achievement Award and he gives the trophy to all who believe. Well done. Victory. Who would you trust? How could you trust someone more than the one who gave his life to save yours? Let's pray. Gracious God, we're listening. We hear you. We believe you brought us here so that you could speak to us today in some way that none of us really understands. We hear you. We hear the good news about Jesus. As we keep our eyes closed and our heads bowed, I'd like to give each of us an opportunity, just a moment, to listen to Jesus. It's just so that you can have a chance to respond to what he's saying to you. Would you just pause and quiet yourself and listen to see if Jesus might speak to you If you're hearing an invitation today to trust the wisdom of Jesus above your own in a particular area of your life, would you confirm that by raising your hand? Just let him know. there's an area of your life, maybe a new area of your life, yes, good, good, good. Where you wanna, good, thank you. You wanna say, Jesus, I, I wanna live with your truth, the truth about me, the truth about the world, the truth about you. Raise your hand now. Good, that's good. He sees that hand. He sees your heart. And today maybe, I don't know, you're hearing this invitation to trust Jesus for the first time. and Maybe it's the moment where you're ready to give your life to Jesus, to say yes to Jesus, to become a Christian. If that's you today, would you confirm by raising your hand to say yes to Jesus? Let him know you're ready to step into the promise of the gospel. All it takes to become a Christian is to say yes to Jesus. That You unlock, yes, the, the new birth, knowledge of God, eternal life. A simple yes to Jesus is all it takes. John tells us in his gospel, these things are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. It doesn't mean all your questions are answered. It doesn't mean all your problems are solved. But it means you're coming to him. And in time he will bring the resolution and the answers, and you trust him for that. There's still time, if you'd like to raise your hand just say, yes, Jesus, take my life. I trust you. I hear you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being the good shepherd who lays down your life for the sheep. Thank you that you speak to us and that we can hear you. Thank you for being the one who knows your sheep and know what we need to hear know how to speak it to us. Thank you for leading us even through the valley of the shadow of death into life everlasting. Amen.